Chapter Seven of East by West by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Chapter Seven: The City of the Saints. The traveller entering Salt Lake City by the Denver and Rio Grande Railway has a very charming introduction. The beauty of this wonderful line has faded amid the sandy plains that lie between the Green River and Grassy Trail. Then, in the early morning, the train glides into Utah Valley with its comfortable little homesteads, tree embowered and surrounded by grass plots, which excite the marvel and envy of dwellers in the Middle States, who all agree that it is more like Connecticut or Massachusetts than anything they are immediately acquainted with. Children throng about the train with baskets of apples, pears, and grapes, which they offer for sale on the principle of a Dutch auction. The price coming down very low indeed as the train begins to move away. We pass through this valley with its blue lake on one side and on the other a range of hills deepening from grey to purple, with streaks of blood red shrubs growing in the fissures, making the hills look as if they had been cut open and the wound left bleeding. Next comes a little pass in the hills, and the train is running along the Salt Lake Valley. To the left, the lake, a streak of blue on the horizon, and to the right, shining in the early morning sun, the city of the saints. It is enough to make good Americans envious of a people whom they on other grounds strongly dislike, to find them located in this pleasant, fruitful valley. A nearer acquaintance with the city is not calculated to lessen this feeling. Land was cheap when Brigham Young, a later Moses, led the tribes out of the wilderness. With all his special gifts of prophecy, the successor of Joseph Smith could not foresee what the new city would grow to. But he wisely determined that it should have a fair start, and began by laying out the streets at a width of 128 feet. By these, ever extending till the city now covers an area of nine square miles, were built business places and residences to suit the needs of the growing population. The houses round the outskirts are very prettily built, most frequently of one story, with verandas and gardens. The city is laid out in squares of ten acres, each subdivided into lots of one and a quarter acre. There are abundant trees growing boldly in the middle of the broad sidewalks, and mountain streams gaily race down by the roadway. These are not trickling streams, but veritable brooks, crossed by gangways. Throughout the territory land sells at six and sixpence an acre. Within the city boundaries it must be pretty dear, for Zion is not only beautiful to look upon, but profitable to peddle in and the saints are, above all things, shrewd men of business. We had the good fortune to arrive at Salt Lake City on Conference Day. These conferences are held twice a year, and are attended by delegates from all the outlying tributaries of the Mormon metropolis. Here was a rare opportunity of seeing not only the city people, but the provincials, otherwise to be obtained only by extended travel. The broad streets were full of them, men, women, and children, standing about, staring into the shop windows, or gossiping with old friends and new acquaintances. 
Bringing no prejudices to the consideration of this interesting settlement, I can honestly say that I never saw in a crowd of ten thousand people so many dull-looking, unintelligent men and women. The latter were atrociously dressed, but it is questionable whether any master of the art could have greatly improved their appearance. It was suggested to the profane mind that women so unattractive, having failed to secure monopoly of a husband, had, with the patient resignation of their sex, finally contented themselves with a share. The peculiarity of personal appearance was marked by a little incident of street travel. Standing in Tribune Avenue, a stream of people suddenly issued from a large building, and made their way through the throng already gathered on the sidewalks. It was borne in upon me that it would be necessary to modify the note already taken, that after long and careful survey of a Mormon crowd, whether in the streets or the tabernacle, there was not only not a pretty face among the women, but not one otherwise than actually plain. Of this new tributary to the crowd, out of every twenty women there were at least half a dozen pretty faces. They were better dressed, and altogether different in manner, laughing and chatting, and looking generally as if they were glad to be alive. Speaking of this to a resident in the avenue, he solved the mystery. This was a Gentile crowd coming out of a Gentile theatre, where they had been enjoying a morning performance. Outsiders, like myself, hastily assume that the Mormon city is a city of Mormons. This is a mistake. Out of an estimated population of twenty-seven thousand, one-fifth are Gentiles, and their number is increasing at least pari passu with that of the saints. The Gentiles cannot turn the Mormons out of the valley which they have made a blooming paradise, but neither can they themselves be kept out, though their incursion and increase are looked upon with jealousy and dislike by the Mormon leaders. It was not altogether unconnected with this matter that Brigham Young had the revelation unfavourable to mining as an occupation. To encourage mining would be to open the door to an influx of Gentiles, a thing by all means to be avoided. But the Gentiles, not being hampered by belief in the divine origin of this revelation, and there being much awe in the neighbourhood, have proceeded to work it, and find Salt Lake City convenient headquarters. The only thing that can be done in the circumstances is to stand as far apart as possible, and contiguity of neighbourhood has not lessened the ill-will that has always existed between Mormons and law-abiding Americans. The tabernacle stands in the centre of the city, broad streets radiating from it to the four points of the compass. It is a curious structure, the like of which was never seen on sea or land, a circumstance explained by the fact that its architectural points were also a divine revelation to Brigham Young. It has a dome-like roof, covered with grey wooden tiles. The roof, which is oval in shape, 250 feet long and 150 feet wide, hangs low on 46 stone piers, the interspaces being filled up with doors and windows. 
the whole affair is strikingly like a prodigious tortoise that has lost its way and is thinking which turn it shall take this is the summer meeting-house of the mormons and has neither means of lighting nor of giving heat close at hand is the winter church more ordinary-looking as being the work of a human architect on the other side of the tabernacle making with it and the church three sides of an irregular square the temple is slowly rising this is a more pretentious building than either of the others over two millions of dollars have already been spent upon it and it is still far from complete though president taylor expects it will be finished in the course of two years gentiles are permitted to enter the tabernacle and attend the services in the hope that some seed falling by the wayside may bear precious fruit the temple will be kept sacred from all pollution only members of the church will pass its portals and here will be carried on those special ministrations directed in the book of doctrine and covenants written by the inspired pen of joseph smith the interior of the tabernacle is plainly furnished with benches a broad gallery runs round it and at one end is a raised platform flanked on either side by galleries chiefly occupied by the choir here also is the organ which in size is equalled only by two others throughout the states one in boston and the other in plymouth church it was an apostle told me built on the premises to avoid catastrophe in the way of finding it impossible otherwise to get it within the walls the roof is hung with garlands of evergreens these did not form part of the original revelation it was a happy thought inspired by the occurrence of a sunday-school festival the decoration so greatly improved the appearance of the vast bare hall that the garlands have been left there though they are old and withered now long before two o'clock the hour named for the afternoon conference a stream of human population converged upon the tabernacle entering by its many doors and speedily flooding the place when president taylor took his seat there was not a bench anywhere vacant a considerable majority of the congregation were women plain-looking hard-working careworn creatures evidently glad of the little excitement brought into their dull lives by this festival next to the women perhaps running them pretty close in the matter of numbers were the children there was no mistaking their presence long before the organ sounded or the choir rose to sing the babies began squall answering to squall throughout the vast edifice occasionally one choked with howling and after being vainly beaten on the back and shaken up was carried out but two or three were nothing in such a multitude bawling and squealing and the crowing went on without distinguishable decrease in volume the proceedings were opened by prayer offered by a rugged-looking elder who stood by the rostrum with horny hands rigidly uplifted president taylor occupied a seat in the back row of benches in the gallery immediately behind the rostrum beside him sat his two counsellors 
in the row immediately before him were the twelve apostles. Before these were ranged a body of the bishops. Not all, for there is a bishop for every ward, and Salt Lake City alone has twenty-one wards. Prayer over, the organ sounded forth, proving to be as beautiful in tone as it was big in size. The choir sang excellently, and then Wilfred Woodruff appeared at the desk, declaring that he could not let the occasion pass without saying a few words. The words turned out to be many, but their purport lay in narrow compass. We, he said, in effect, dwelling in this city of the New Jerusalem, are the chosen people, the sons of God. We go our way living temperately, chastely and righteously. The world hates us with a bitter hatred, missing no opportunity of striking a blow at us. But what matter? It has ever been thus. The hatred of the world has always pursued the children of God, and it will be so till the end, when our glory and our triumph will come. This Mr. Woodruff said over and over again in varying phrase, not one of which was successful in eliciting from the audience a movement or sign of sympathy. It would be difficult to imagine anything more commonplace, bald, and ineffective than this address, harping on the one string which subsequent speakers touched to bring out precisely the same tune. Eloquence certainly is not one of the gifts by exercise of which the Mormon leaders hold the people in sway. There were many other addresses delivered at the so-called conference at which all the talk was done by the hierarchy. None rose above the level of Mr. Woodruff's address, and it would not have been easy to fall below it. I particularise this speech because Mr. Woodruff is a notable man. As President of the Twelve Apostles, he is the natural successor of Mr. Taylor in the Presidency, and in his hands will rest the principal guidance of the destinies of the people. Nominally, the election of a new President rests with the people, in whose hands lie all appointments to office. But when a new President is elected, only one name is submitted, that of the President of the Twelve Apostles. The people may vote no if they please to assume an attitude of open revolt to their spiritual pastors and masters. As a matter of fact, they never do, and when President Taylor dies, President Woodruff will reign in his stead, carrying forward in regular course the decline in personal ability which has marked new presidents since it became necessary to elect a successor to Brigham Young. Mr. Taylor is a man of great shrewdness and sagacity, who would have stood higher in the public estimation if he had not had the misfortune to succeed a consummate statesman like Brigham Young. Born in Westmoreland of German family, he came out to the States forty years ago, and was one of those who marched under the leadership of Brigham Young across the Great Plains into the valley of the Salt Lake. He has travelled widely, taking something more than his share of missionary work, labouring in England, France, and all over the United States. Travel has increased his knowledge, widened his sympathies, 
and made him what is known as a man of the world. That Mr. Woodruff lacks some of the qualities essential to the making of a statesman would appear from the fact that he is now bent upon reviving and carrying into daily usage certain superadded principles of the Mormon religion, of which Brigham Young judiciously fought shy, and is in this respect imitated by President Taylor. When Joseph Smith was growing old, with digestion weakened and spirits lowered, he had a revelation of the pernicious effects of hot drinks, tobacco, and malt liquor. This, it will be perceived, is a sweeping prohibition, for hot drinks include tea, coffee, and chocolate, beverages with which total abstainers compensate themselves. To enforce obedience to these precepts would be to imperil the newly founded kingdom. Brigham Young always spoke respectfully of the words of wisdom, as this particular revelation is called, but did not have them written on the posts of his door, or embroidered on the hem of his garment. Neither does President Taylor, wise in his generation. But Mr. Woodruff rigidly carries into practice all the instructions to be found in this revelation, which would be no particular matter, only he is insistent that others should do the same, under pain of being denounced as failing in their duty to God. In his address on conference day he dragged in this topic, and gave a sly hit at one of the sons of the late prophet, who, he said, failed in one respect. Whether it is his whisky cocktail, his cigar, or his hot cup of tea that Mr. Young finds too precious for sacrifice was not particularised. When Mr. Woodruff had made an end of speaking, Mr. Q. Cannon came forward. This gentleman formerly represented the territory in the Congress at Washington, but was not returned at the last election. He is an energetic, ambitious man, understood to be not quite sound on the principle that the President of the Apostles is the natural successor of the President of the Church. Mr. Cannon's duty on this occasion was limited to reading out the list of missionaries, called to go forth and spread among the Gentiles the gospel of Joseph Smith. This part of the proceedings was summed up in the Gentile local paper the following day by the statement that eighty-one Mormon tramps are to be let loose next week on the United States and Europe but a great fact is not to be ignored by a flippant adversary, and it struck me that this brief announcement formed the most striking part of the proceedings. The men who were thus nominated to go forth to the ends of the earth and labour among hostile populations were of various ages and occupying diverse positions. There were old and young, married and single, but all sharing in common the necessity of earning their living. If the command laid upon them had also involved the appropriation of a more or less snug salary, with expenses paid, it might in some cases have assumed a different aspect. But when men in the Mormon camp are suddenly called upon to leave father and mother, wife and children, business and home, they not only go forth without any provision in the way of monthly or yearly pay, 
but they pay their own passage money to the scene of their labours, and there live as they can. Of course they may decline to go, and there are no means of active compulsion, but probably a man who had been ordered to pack off at a week's notice, and who pleaded business or family ties, would have a bad time of it among the faithful. President Taylor told me excuses are very rarely offered, and only in extremist cases. The most common response to the command is an assurance that the newly nominated missionary will be ready to start within a week, or sooner if it be desired. Most churches have missionaries, but I do not know any church that exclusively has missionaries on these terms and one that can command a constant supply will always be a power in the world. When Mr. Cannon had fired off his list, the congregation were asked whether they approved it, and whether they would sustain those going forth by faith and prayer. Those who were in the affirmative were asked to hold up their right hand, at which invitation about a third of those present held up their hand. When the question was put in a contrary sense, there were no supporters. So the missionaries were unanimously, if not enthusiastically, nominated. A similarly listless ceremony was gone through when, in accordance with custom at these half-yearly conferences, the whole of the officers, from the President downwards, had their names submitted for confirmation in office. This is purely a matter of form, designed with the object of tickling the popular palate with the notion that though the president, apostles, and bishops sit in high places, they do so only at the royal pleasure of the populace. But it is plain to see that this formula contains the seeds of a possible revolution. Nothing has hitherto happened to lead the people seriously to exercise their rights. A name or names have been submitted to them, and having no alternative, they have languidly approved. But crises in the history of a nation silently grow, and one may have birth which will see the tabernacle filled with a crowd terribly in earnest. Just before the proceedings commenced, the President, advancing to the desk, firmly proclaimed that silence must be kept. If, he declared with all the weight of apostolic authority, any of the babies cannot be kept quiet, they must be carried out. Hereupon there arose a wail of defiance from the assembled infants in arms, before which the President assumed his seat. It was all very well to say the babies must be carried out, but where to begin? To make a wholesale raid upon them would have had as much appreciable effect as attempting to empty the serpentine with a bucket. Accordingly, in spite of the high authority invoked, the babies, with the exception of the few prematurely choked, remained and wailed, their united voices frequently drowning that of the President of the Apostles, and throughout the whole of his address, and of others that followed, prevented people beyond the middle of the hall hearing a single consecutive sentence. End of chapter 7